Welcome to the Matt Ricardo's London Varieties podcast. My name is Matt Ricardo. This month's podcast is a little bit of a special one. We've got some snippets from the live show, as usual, but most of the podcast will be devoted to my interview with Eddie Izzard. Two decades and change ago, me and Eddie used to share a pitch as street performers in Covent Garden, and it was great to catch up with him and chat about how those years influenced him and how he remembers them. But before we get to that, I'd like to mention a couple of things. I'm taking a one-man show to the Edinburgh Fringe. It's my third one-man show, and I think it's my best yet, so I'm very excited about it. I'll be at the Pleasance Jack Dome at 6.50pm every day. But if you're in London, I'm doing a couple of preview shows. I'll be at Jackson's Lane on the 22nd of June and at the Leicester Square Theatre Studio on the 11th of July. Both my previous one-man shows have got five-star reviews and one of them won a theatre award, so please come and see this before it hits the fringe. And talking of the Leicester Square Theatre, we only have two more London Varieties shows this year. The next one is on the 27th of June and features Jenny Eclair, Jimmy Cricket, mouth juggler Rod Laver and the amazing So-and-So Circus. The stage called it the best light entertainment show of the year, so I'd love you to come down and check it out. Fun is guaranteed. You can get more information about all of these shows at mattricardo.com and you can book tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com or jacksonslane.org.uk. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's get on with the show. I met Eddie the day after he'd played a weekend of sellout shows at Wembley Arena, and we sat down and immediately started chatting like the two old buskers we are. Hope you enjoy it. When I first started in juggling, I used to go to juggling workshops every Sunday afternoon, um, and it is as odd and unsettling as it sounds, a, a sports hall full of jugglers. <laughs> you. And you go in just thinking, just one grenade. Just, um, <laughs> suddenly you get the gigs. And, and it was good, it's you. You go there, you exchange tricks. And, and one of the first times I was there, this, and I hope he doesn't mind me using this phrase, because I mean it with nothing but affection, this crazy old Irishman comes running up to me and starts showing me tricks and asking me about my tricks. And suddenly I've met this guy who is this font of knowledge. And at that point I had no idea who he was. And then I started talking to anybody else and everyone knew him. And everyone loved him, and you're going to love him too. So please, go absolutely nuts for the amazing Mr. Pierce Halfpenny. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, if you've never seen me before, my name is Michael Pierce. I'm one of the older, better-class, cheaper acts. <laughs> I am not here to entertain you. What I will be doing is part of my 200 hours community service. <laughs> I've come all the way from Croydon to be here. You don't need to know that, but it'll stop someone from saying, where the hell did they get in from? <laughs> Three of the most stressful things that can happen to anyone. The first one is dying. The second one is doing an act on the stage. And the third most stressful thing of all is actually dying while doing an act on the stage. (laughs) I once done this act at a gay 90s party. All the men were gay and all the women were 90. 
I once done this act for a group of midwives and gynecologists. What a knee shop that was. So I thought, I thought I'd just come up and just have a quick uh, chat with Pierce. Is that okay with you? Yeah. yeah. So, um, Pierce, um, how long have you been doing this? Actually, uh, from the year I was 12, I saw a circus in Ireland. There was a juggler in it, and I got the only thought, this would be wonderful if I could do that. And uh, to a certain extent, it was self-taught. And it took me years. And eventually, got an old book that was published in 1921, and that got me started. It took, took me a long time. I could go to a juggling club now, and you could learn more in two days than I. It took me probably about ten years to learn. So there you go. Uh, um, so when did you start doing it professionally? I worked quite locally. I was a building foreman, and all around here, when the juggling craze started, I was working down Power Mill, and the jugglers were in Covent Garden. I used to come up and do little workshops for them, and then they got a bit hooked on it. And it was a bit of a minor slab at that time. <laughs> Despite, and then I went back to do my work down, down there. And later on, uh, somebody said at a magic convention in Eastbourne, why don't you enter it? You won't win it because it's not a magic act. But I did win it, but I won the comedy side, and a whole new career took off in 65, before we go on much further, invited up to Blackpool, Ken Dodd was made an honorary president of the Blackpool Magic Club, and he awarded the cup for being the best promising comedy newcomer. I got it at 65. Michael Pierce! Oh, man. I'm here to have a few words with a man that all 20 odd years ago I used to uh, hang out with and work with every day. Uh, but since then, he's gone on to be one of the world's biggest comedy stars. It's going to be fun to catch up with Eddie Izzard. Good morning. Hello. Thank you alright? Long time no see. Is it long time? Because I feel because we've been chatting, I think. Is it? Well, we were chatting before they started the cameras, but. Yeah, no, but face to face. Face to face, a while. Yeah, isn't it? But you were there, when did you get down the garden? Late 80s, 88. I keep going, just trying to work out everything. So I think, I I think we, were, we had about an, a, a year cross over. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I left in 89. Yeah. So I was about four years. I remember when you and me and Paddy went over to the South Bank to try and get a new pitch started. Right. And me and Paddy had all our stuff and just started walking off. And you stopped and said, why don't you just get a cab? And at that point, that's, that's the point where you, you marked yourself out as having ambition. Oh, see, I got that from J.J. Waller. Yeah, OK. You yeah. know J.J. Mm-hmm. Waller? who's now a photographer. And J.J. turned up at Edinburgh Festival. Um, and I think it must have been 85, 86. So he turned up there and he'd found, you know, you can get a table and an umbrella, kind of normal size. Well, he'd found a small table and a small umbrella that they'd use as a shop thing, maybe for kids clothes or something so he they stopped using it and he said can I have this or he, he got it somehow so he had this mini table and mini umbrella uh, you know basically kid size and a, and a small chair and he sat there um, maybe having a cigarette having a cup of coffee and he just sat as he's waiting to do a show and I just thought god that looks really cool and then uh, he did a show and then he finished and he just packed things up and a taxi had swooped on and he went taxi jumped in the taxi went off and I thought okay that's that's kind of where I need to go yeah. in the street performing terms. So, um, yes, that was the logic of getting a taxi. But I did that. I mean, West, uh, what do we call it? It's not West, it's Waterloo Bridge 
it's got a great view over there. And now, what's happened on the South Bank, and you haven't asked a question yet, but I'm answering questions that you haven't answered. But what's happening now on the South Bank with the shops along there, because I kept going over uh, and talking to the people who run the South Bank, and they were saying, well, we're thinking of regeneration projects and doing different architecture. And I said, well, the human traffic here is a problem. If there's more human traffic, uh, I started coming up with these technical names uh, around here, then there could be more performers over. On, on the South Bank, because it's a perfect pitch, mm. but there was just no one there. And then now they've got all the restaurants there, and there's a lot more stuff happening. There's quite a lot of people doing um, uh, statues. Crate slugs. Sorry? Crate slugs. Crate slugs? Crate slugs, that's the technical busker's name for a statuette. Crate oh, slug. Yeah. It's on a crate, it doesn't move very fast. Crate slugs, yes. Yeah. Some of them, some, well, there are masters of it, and there's a lot of people who are this not is very good. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. that that's, uh, sadly, that's, I think, what a lot of people see as street performing. Well, th- well that's an interesting point, because that comes in, again, I'm answering a question you haven't answered, but um, people think that the, the median level, you, you take a median level at Covent Garden, because there are some brilliant people who would turn up maybe less often, yeah. and some really good people who are there more often, and then there's quite a whole bunch of people. You could just turn up and just see someone who's pretty indifferent, or maybe very new, and could be good in the future, but you look at them and think... Oh, the, the standard isn't very good here. And it's not like the comedy store where someone's booking people in all the yeah. time. So that's the trouble with us, is that with, with uh, street performing, is that people can turn up at any time, and it's, it's hit and miss as to who you're going to see. I always wondered whether... People trying to break in there. Um, I always wondered whether... If they ever got it so that they could be booking international acts in between one or two at lunchtime, that people got to know that thing. Oh, if you turn up at a certain point, then you get the... You know, amazing act. Sort of headline act. Yeah, time. but that takes money and whatever, an organisation which didn't happen. But yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so what are your memories of being a street performer? Are they, are they, are they fond? They are fond. They're fond in a slightly like I went to. Um, I went to a very tough school, like it was Tom, <laughs> not Tom Rice, but it was more like a Oliver Twist. It was somewhere between Dickens's Oliver Twist and, uh, and uh, some sort of endless festival that we were having. The fact that under the porticos, where, which people don't quite realise, uh, My Fair Lady, Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, is shot and where Audrey Hepburn's going around this Dutch woman doing a playing an English woman. Anyway, all that scene under these porticos, you know, that's where mm-hmm. we hang out. And it yeah. felt like our building and the, um, at least our frontage. And the, uh, the vicar never liked that. Well, there's a vicar that I arrived who did like us, and there's a vicar who really didn't like us. And probably most vicars of the place didn't like, even though it's the actor's church. Yeah, they don't like actors. <laughs> anyway, so I liked being there. I liked that. Initially, I, uh, I liked being there, but I was awful. And uh, I was with Rob, performing with Rob Ballard, and collectively we were not good. I think Rob would agree. But Rob came down for a bit in '85, and then he had to go off and do something. And I said, "Don't worry, I'll rewrite the show, I'll sort it out." And I made it worse. <laughs> so we were, we got down to very little money for 30 minutes of not good stuff. And it was the embarrassing thing was sort of hanging around with people who thought, who obviously with their manner and attitude to us gave off this attitude of, well, you're rubbish. Um, and they didn't necessarily say that. Some people would say that, but they didn't necessarily say that. But you could just feel they weren't going to hang out with you because you weren't doing anything any good. I thought I was rubbish. 
Um, and this is having done three Edinburgh festivals before this, so I felt that I was at a certain standard of good. And I thought two weeks, and I'll get this. <laughs> and it was a year and a half to get it, really, or at least a year. Um, so it was it was feeling bad hanging around before the show, going out and doing the show, feeling bad all the way through the show, and then coming off and feeling bad after the show. And then there might be some audience walking around going, "Those are those guys." They didn't weren't necessarily doing it. But you, th- you you thought that the audience were going, or people wanted to go, "Those are those guys who did that terrible show." But at its best, because we were doing failed tricks. At its best, it could be, "Hey, they're crazy." But at its worst, it, we were just, "What is this rubbish?" And it was rubbish. So we were doing sort of funny rubbish but um, it, it was a struggle and you know dealing with the weather the fact that the audience would just wander off mm. couldn't get the hang of that we tried to rope them in we used a rope we used to put a rope around two or three people to try and make the edge trying to make the edge I didn't even understand the concept of it that's the hard thing but street performing got me Hollywood Bowl mm. that's the weird thing being able to do in the end, after, and I lost all my confidence at Covent Garden. Yeah. This is something that's very interesting. I lost everything. So I was, um, I was pushing at school, 17, 18. I wrote a really rubbishy play at 16, but I was desperately trying to get into stuff. And then I got into some good stuff at school, 17. I made a lot of people laugh when I was about 17, 18. I did something that was quite dramatic, but that couldn't help me at that time. Go to university, immediately trying to do shows. Went to the f- first Edinburgh Festival at, at, from Sheffield University, and no one was going to, um, to Edinburgh Festival. So I cut my teeth on that, three years of that organization, making tickets, posters, all stuff that you couldn't bring down. So I knew how to put stuff on, and suddenly it was down to no one really cares how you can put stuff on. You've just got to develop this, what I think physical situation comedy is what street performing is about, I think. Which, if you're doing juggling, if you're doing magic, you set yourself into scenarios, and by talking, or even soundlessly, even silent, you can, you can stuff is happening, people go, oh, what's gonna happen next? And if you just, and I, I initially, I once tried going out and doing sketches and it was awful because they just, nobody cared. And I found attention spans, adult attention spans become childlike and children's attention spans become animal-like, like <laughs> dogs. So you have to basically go out and, and threaten physical violence on, on things. So get a kid out and say, we're gonna kill this kid. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And it becomes like Tom and Jerry cartoon violence. You're not actually doing mm. violence, but you, if, especially if it's an annoying kid. They just want you to kill the kid. It's it's kind of odd, but um, but it was it was coming out of it was great. But going into it that first year was rough. Yeah. Rough winter, you know, and all oh, the winters, man. And the winter, it was just yeah. But so I can't remember if I had any good thoughts about that. I do remember going to the first Edinburgh Festival, which came around about '86. And that being awful, people walking through a show, you know, you didn't have enough energy between yourself and the few people that were sprinkled there watching your show. And then some tourists would just walk slowly through your show. And you're going, no, no, can you not see the, the, no, you obviously can't see. And they were just wondering, they didn't even know what you were talking about. They just thought someone was talking to you. In fact, you're walking through your space. And, you know, by the end of street performing, I had learnt to develop this thing so that, you know, I could go to America and let's say, let's play bigger places, let's play arenas, push to do that. Um, and that came from street performing, because street performing is, you know, a huge venue. Mm. That, that one, the West Piazza is a huge venue. And the sky, it goes right up to, um, right up to some 
satellite going around space. <laughs> it's got a big roof, i.e. no roof. And so uh, learning to develop the confidence to stand there was, was the whole thing. Yeah, I think people talk about charisma as a performer as if it's a kind of innate magical thing, but I think it's a learned skill. And I think street yes. performing is one of the best ways of learning that skill because you need to be able to get people to look at you and trust you by doing very little, just by having a manner about you. Well, it's interesting. Charisma, I'd say confidence. I'd say street confidence is something learned because you can have, I think you've got to have a certain amount of confidence before you do the street because after yeah. your first gig, you will be rudely awakened to yeah. the fact that they don't care unless you're pretty damn good because that you can't hold the edge. And the only other people have an edge is, uh, is street vendors as well. They develop that talk about working the edge, which okay. is interesting. I saw a documentary on this. But yes, um, so charisma, yeah, that builds it. I think I feel charisma is like confidence plus, isn't it? It's confidence. Yeah. It's like some sort of special thing. It's on just taking it to the edge where it's nearly arrogance. But it's not quite. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Swagger. Yeah, that's um, being a pilot is something like that. Because <laughs> no, I'm scared of flying, so I learned to fly. And I found that to put the plane back down on the ground, you need a confidence bordering arrogance to say, this piece of metal is going to get down. No problems. Because it it's, it's, it, it's beyond normal. And it's yeah. kind of like, and the, the danger's way less, but on the street, it's only mental danger of performing. But you can, and if you've had this, we've all had this as street performers, people just leaving and you know, and it just being awful shows. Um, my early, I, don't, I don't know if you've had it. I assume you've had it. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember setting up stuff on the East Piazza, uh, singing to myself on a cold, rubbishy day. But I was quite confident at this point, putting out the tea cozies, these animal tea cozies, the duck and the hippo and stuff, singing, there's no business like show business to myself, <laughs> which um, I liked the irony of. And someone came and kicked one of my tea cozies over. <laughs> the tea cozies were good though I liked the tea cozies the tea cozies were funny I came up with one thing out of until I invented this very late show there was only one thing um, that I thought was good pure street was, was the hippo I think it was the hippo tea cozy I'd say this hippo tea cozy it can fly has the ability to fly and it's amazing but I'll just show you and I'd throw the hippo tea cozy over the back of the audience and I said it has the ability whenever, it's, no I said it was a boomerang tea cozy whenever I throw it it always comes back wherever I throw it always comes back and then I just leave the pauses and I say wherever I throw it it always comes back and I just keep saying this <laughs> until someone would pick it up and throw it it always comes back <laughs> and that was, that was so small you couldn't make a show out of it but I thought that is pure street that took me about four years to come up with that because yeah. I was using a lot of borrowed lines and before I'd been writing stuff you know. so I thought I can write sketches with characters but sketches with characters do not work on the street yeah. or they're very difficult to you can I have worked out how to do street theatre actually with characters because you know, sometimes they'd rack up a whole street theatre group and, and they had some, a lot of visual stuff so people would stick around and watch it but the trick is and I think this is what the mummers used to do in Shakespeare's time and what the old street travelling people used to do, if they got it right, would be, they would say, I'm the king, I'm the king, I need uh, more soup. Who is, where is the soup maker? And someone else would be the soup maker. And then the trick would be, would be to say these lines, but then to turn to the audience and say, you see, I need soup. And, and actually address them eyeball to eyeball. I need soup because I'm a big soup guy, yeah? And you can have soup too. If you're with me, uh, you guys will, okay. These, guys, these are my men as well. So we need a lot of soup this time. So you'd actually bring them in and build them part of the show, which... Um, 
which I, I, as soon as I saw that, and I did a bit of that in, in some sort of muck about um, big show that we were having down on uh, Covent Garden, I felt that is the trick to doing drama or doing a big uh, a character show on the yeah. street. You have to admit that the audience is there. You have to bring them in, otherwise they'll just wander off. Yeah, I think generally it's, it's such an atypical situation that it's hard to to convey to the audience that you're any other character than a man on a street trying mm. to get a crowd to do a show because that's such a strong character. Yeah. yeah, the reality is so strong and so weird to most people. Yes, you, you have know. to do room humor of the place. Yeah. If you start saying, I was, I was off in, I was, you know when you're in you know, a, a taxi and you're going along and they go, I don't care about taxis because yeah. I'm right here. But if you say, you've got a weird haircut, what are you doing here? I used to, oh, there's one great, uh, sorry, again, you haven't asked the question, but I'm, I'm giving... I'm just going off on tangents, but I wanted to say this was imagine a, that this was a nice thing. This was I'd start the show by saying I only perform to beautiful people, and I don't mean this this external beautiful people going. I mean the internal beautiful, the really beautiful people. I will only perform to that. Some of you are ugly as hell on the inside, and you know it, and you will be leaving during the show. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there. As soon as I lay that out, if anyone left, go well. There they go. What did I say? They know how hateful and diseased they are in their own minds, and they have to go. They have to. Do. And it was a, it was a preservation thing because of all you know. You know that point where suddenly a chunk of your show goes, mm-hmm. and it's like someone's letting air out of a balloon. It's so heartbreaking. Oh God, especially when kids turn up. Yeah. You know that thing when a kids party and there's a oh, teacher yeah. with kids, and halfway through the show they have no idea what's going on. They go, "Okay, kids, it's time to go now." And suddenly your whole wall of your show goes. Yeah, and and often they would leave if they were that side of the crowd. They would leave by walking through the show. Really? Oh man! They would take other people with them. You know, just by sort of washing them away. Oh, cracky! I, I don't think Ooh. I experienced that. But I'd actually go up to the kids or to the teacher and I'd say, "I'm going to do a disgusting show. It is filthy." And I horrible. did the same trick. All oh, right, really? Yeah, I used to go and find the teacher before the show and yeah. say, "I've been told by." the management that because of the language I use yeah. you shouldn't watch yeah. and they'd thank you and then leave exactly yeah it was actually a false uh was it a false um help wasn't it you yeah, thought it's not oh my God, there's a whole bunch of people they all want to watch the show they're eager they're eager they're eager but they're going to leave halfway through yeah and you knew it they just would not stay till you wanted them to go you, you had no control of it so no. you had to get them out of there so did, were you already, you know, Mr. Improvising Tangents before wow. Covent Garden, or did that, did, did you find that at Covent Garden? Because obviously the great thing about street performing is that you can do whatever you like. No, I found that at Covent Garden. Um, no, I was doing it on, on, the, on stage up at Sheffield Uni. So I did do... Um, I was improvising, but within lines. So I had lines, and uh, and I would go off on a tangent. And I can't, I think I wanted to bring that in. But the key thing was actually me and Rob, before we started the show, we knew we had to build up an edge. So we got the hang of that. We dumped the idea of the rope going around people, so we started being like real street performances. We went to the, into the sword fighting bit, which became good. That was a new idea. People weren't doing sword fighting. Hadn't stolen it, you know, because there's so many borrowed lines. I, I used to hate this. Um, which I would use, you know, because I was so desperate to try and get some reaction. And he, I think I, I had the front right or stage right bit, and he had a stage left. And so we'd work on the people in that, and he'd work on those people to try and bring them in and create an edge so we could make half an edge each. And that became, began, was the beginning of my solo shows. Because hmm. I talked to people and do this and say, you know, we're going to do a show and you're going to hate it and I'm just going to be here and I don't care and I don't even live here. And, and then when, when I went solo, that was, 
exact, I was starting exactly the same way. And I realized at a certain point that something was beginning to happen because I was developing a voice because I'd only played characters before. Mm. That was also a big problem. I played, this is me, I'm the general of a large thing, or oh, I'm a small idiot, I don't know what's going on. I played these separate characters with costumes in the scenes. And then I suddenly had to go to myself talking and find a narrator's voice, which I thought the Americans did much better than we did in the old days. Like, in a very generalized way, the Brits seem to do characters and the Americans seem to play themselves. And that's not entirely true. But it is fancy. I mean, I thought Dan Aykroyd from Saturday Night Live did lots of characters, but then he was Canadian, so maybe that, they were influenced by this thing. But anyway, that... There was a point I started developing my own voice of being, I don't think you really... I don't know if I want to watch it. Do you want to watch it? I don't know. And this... I, I suppose I started amusing myself mm. with this stuff that was coming out. So, yeah, it really built me. And I lost all my confidence. I was going around asking people, the bottlers, the people collecting money, as you know, we call the bottlers. And uh, I was asking them, how do you do street performing? Because I just couldn't get the hang of it. I was asking people who would not know how to do it. I just couldn't work out what it was. In the end, I kept doing it because I couldn't think of anything else. Didn't want to go back to, I wasn't going back to university. I'd already dropped out of university. Wasn't going to do a straight job. Just had to keep buggering on, as Ch Ch as Churchill used to say. Uh, and then I started seeing a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. That's what happened. Mm. It struck me. Like, obviously, before before this, I, I rewatched a bunch of your stuff, and it seems a kind of recurring uh, thing in your work that you kind of. Do you do specific references, but non-location-specific references in your work? It's all kind of in a stand-up. Yeah, and I wonder if that's influenced by the same technique, giving rewards in street performing, because you work at Covent Garden to a, an audience all over the world. Right. So you can't be specific, and now you work to an audience all over the world. But now you travel, and instead of them right, traveling yes. to you. Um, well, I do feel, because Stomp, of course, came from Poogie Snackenberg, yeah. um, who were a street band that really, when they were playing with Cliffhanger up at Edinburgh Festival, that's when I first saw street performing. I thought, I want to do some of that, as well as what I'm doing. In the end, it became the, the thing I did. But um, uh, it's interesting that they, which is Steve McNicholas and Luke Cresswell, have taken Stomp all around the world and have an affinity for making that. And I went to see Stomp recently in London, and it was better than it was 10 to 15 years ago. Now that's that's good. That's both of them constantly working on it, updating it, pushing it, um, but having this universal outlook. So I think I think definitely doing the street performing helped engender a universal outlook. But I think ambition as well. I was thinking if I'm going to play America, I can't just do stuff that's about hey I was in Croydon and cook Croydon, hey, you know that's not going to work unless you start explaining things about Croydon and, and it's south of London, but it's attached to London. Da, da, da. So um, I think I do talk about locations in my stand-up. I just don't because I will talk about Sparta, I will talk about Athens, and I'm talking about this stuff, but I won't. But I will make it universal. And so I say, you know the ancient gods? Now, a mainstream British, American, Romanian, and Russian audience will go, no, we don't necessarily know that. But the more progressive audience that I have chosen to play to, mm. 
uh, which is the Monty Python audience, which is maybe the Simpsons audience, the adult version of that, even though a lot of kids watch that. Um, it's a certain aware audience, an alternative comedy audience. That is the one that I'm looking for. So when I say Greek gods or uh, talk about human sacrifices I'm doing at the moment, you know, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we know a certain amount about that. So, um, but it, it links through from the street. Um, but I don't think it's the locations. It's more that it's just a universal ideas Yeah, is what I'm doing. Yeah. So you mentioned Stomp. Um, yeah. Can you remember other performers at Covent Garden at the time who, who were an inspiration or, or, or influence? Or? Well, the Amazing Mendezes. Oh. Um, well, I don't know if Alex was... I think Alex was separate to that. Then Alex and Chris. Chris and Alex... Mm. And Chris came from the Mendezes. Um, um, uh, well, JJ Wall and Tim Bat were doing really good stuff before Popticians, John Hagley and the Popticians. They were down at Covent Garden, then they weren't at Covent Garden, then indoors. Um, uh, there were a lot of good people down there. Um, and But I was, I was trying to carve out a certain niche that was probably not like what most people were doing. Mm. Yeah. So that's the thing. So, like, uh, Sean Gandini could do amazing juggling, but I wasn't going to do what Sean was doing. Yeah. So I sort of watched it. The great, the great thing was people, magicians would come up and show me stuff, and I'd, I'd met other magicians who would never show me anything. So suddenly I was inside this circle, and they said, you see that? And then we do that, and then that, and that. And I go, oh, all right. The car manipulations and stuff. So I liked being on the inside track of that. But um, it was the performance stuff... In the end, it was the talking stuff that was really going to get me going. Mm. And some people were great at talking behind a skill set. And if you're talking without a skill set... I mean, Andre Vincent did amazing... Uh, he, he did this performance show with it. People would do a C, and there was a whole story to go through it. And he would do very good shows, and it was very good working with the audience. And I always wanted to do a show like his. In the end, I was trying to do that. I was trying to do um, Little Red Riding Hood. And in the end, I'd, I'd, I'd get the audience to improvise, it, well, to choose the mode of transport that Little Red Riding Hood goes through. <laughs> and it didn't really work. Um, it was interesting. Then I said, who do you want to die? Who do you want to die? Do you want Little Red Riding Hood or... Do you want the wolf to kill Grandma or Little Red Riding Hood? And then I think they all said... Grandma. No, I think it's a little bit really good, and Grandma got off with the wolf. That sort of happened every time, which was kind of weird. But in the end, I did develop, after Edinburgh, this whole Dan Busters show where, where I got a kid volunteer, and the kids would become um, Guy Gibson of the Dan Busters squad, and he would have a little rubber ball and set up tin cans as a, as a dam and uh, would fly the kid over the heads of all the people singing da 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 which is a very British thing. And then they'd line it up, and then the kid would drop the, the ball, he'd fly all the way around, and then the kid would let, let go of the ball, boing, 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 hit the tin cans, and people would go berserk. That was a great, pure street show. Um, made out of nothing. All I needed was a rubber ball. I could find tin cans out of, a, out of a bin, and the rest of it was just talk. And I never quite developed it fully. It had a great ending, which is... You know, the, the key things of stand up of the street, you need to have a phenomenal ending. I mean, phenomenal ending. Not just a good, you need a really being good ending. And, uh, and everything just builds up to that. And then you can say, that was good, wasn't it? Now give me every bit of cash you've ever made. 
and a decent bottling speech. Yeah, that's that's what you need more than anything else. Well, the, I think everyone's got very sophisticated now. Um, it's all deep psychology. Yes, yeah, the psychology in how to because people will. I, I, I was standing next to watching someone else's show, and a parent gave the kids, you know, oh, you, let's give you some coppers to give to the performers who just worked for forty-five minutes. So you probably give out ten pence for a family of four to watch a, a forty-five minute show, and you think this is wrong. And then even if you talk with them, they'd say, well, I, I gave them all the coppers I've got. Yeah, yeah, we're not begging, mate. I would have thumped you. No, I couldn't. <laughs> so I remember when you started, you were still working at Covent Garden, I think, but you were doing stand-up as well. You were starting. Right, yeah, 88 to 88. I started in 88, so one year crossover. And then I remember you, uh, I was at the first night of Raging Bull. Uh-huh. I remember you, you invited a bunch of us to come to that. Yeah. And we all went, oh, oh, so this is what he's doing. Okay. But the point at which I, I, it kind of blew my mind really early on. I mean, it would have been maybe 89. You started having T-shirts. You got on the, the merch thing. For the, for the venue? Yeah. Was, I think it was, was the it, venue. Itself. Yeah. yeah. And I saw somebody in your, I think it was in your street show crowd, wearing a Raging Bull t-shirt. Oh, right. And they hadn't put it on to come and see you. They just happened to be wearing it. Oh, right. I thought, that's an amazing kind of... Well, that's what I was doing for three years before, you know, we started street. So I had this ability to put on shows, but I was in a, a place where you needed no t-shirts, no posters, no nothing. Yeah. Which, in the end, made me work on the material. I realized, with all the production in the world, if your show is crap, then no one gives a damn. No one ever says this show was developed over 10 years. It's beautiful, but I'm not going to watch it because it took so long to develop. Yeah. And they also don't say, well, and uh, hopefully this is true. They don't say, uh, this, is, this is a rubbishy show, but they came up with it and, you know, in five minutes or so. Let's go and watch it. But you know, there are some, I suppose, more pop groups that you think, this is not good, but, and someone else has written everything. Actually, no, actually, the pop group probably will be good. They might be good at dancing, but someone might be tweaking all their singing, and there will be managers and, and, and uh, producers writing the music and stuff, so they're not actually doing much. They're just the front, the front part of it. But I realized in the end on street performing that I needed to work on the stuff and get the stuff good. Yeah. And then when I went to my first Edinburgh, I could do a poster, I could do this, I could do that, I knew about the tickets, I knew about everything. So that's, and Raging Bull was, was part of that. Um, I knew what to do there. I mean, I didn't make it into a big success, but it really helped me because I was doing, a pri- I was hosting a prime, you know, 10 p.m. Saturday night show, centre of London. So. Uh, and that, 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 that first run at the Ambassadors. Yeah. How much of a risk was that? That was quite a big risk, but with the momentum going on, it wasn't too bad, because I was, I'd, I'd come off the circuit at the end of 91, and this was 93, so 92, I did the, the uh, Bloomsbury Theatre, then I played Wimbledon Theatre, then I did the Hackney Empire, then I did Wimbledon Theatre, then I did the Shaw Theatre for two weeks. I thought if I can sell out the two weeks at the Shaw Theatre, which is about a 500-seater, then I'm going to wait six months and then go for it in the West End, which was about January we went in, uh, 93. So it was, it was putting all the cash we had on the line. And, um, and by the end of it, we'd, we'd filmed it. John Godillard filmed it and uh, um, had to sell the video because I wasn't 
I wasn't initially doing deals with video companies and they were all offering, but I had to do that because we were just, we'd run out of money. But, um, so it was, it was chancy, but people were gambling on the momentum. I think, I'm not sure how much we had to pay up front, but they were gambling like, oh, he's done that theater and that theater and that theater. Like it was all in, with two month breaks. Like January was in the Bloomsbury, February, March was in Hackney Empire, April, May, June, July. It was literally like two month jump. So I had this whole plan, come off the circuit. And a lot of people had come off the circuit playing the circuit and they'd gone off to do art centers and theaters around the UK and then they'd fallen back onto the circuit. And I mm. thought, you've got to come off and stay off. It's got to be a rocket. You've got to get out of orbit. So that was the thing. And the West End, it wasn't a standard thing then. Um, you had to have a TV show and then you did the West End. No one was doing the West End yeah. uh, TV show. So um, I didn't think I was gambling with my ability, but I was also coming out and I was wearing dresses and makeup. So that was, that was a gamble. That was a definite. Yeah, you chose the first night of the ambassador's run? No, no, no. I'd already not? tested out beforehand. Okay. I tested out and it was working. But what I started doing was I doing one night boy mode, one night girl mode, one night right. boy mode. So I started doing that. So when they reviewed it, I was in boy mode. Didn't take that chance. But I was just <laughs> sort of filtering it in and, and I'd already seen that audiences were okay with it. So then I had to get a look together because I was looking a bit all over the place. <laughs> so this, uh, this is a, a, a good time to kind of refer to this note. Um, it seems that you're incredibly stubborn. That you're one of those people that has to do things on on your own terms. Doesn't have to be on my own terms. Uh, it's more. I'm yes, I'm stubborn. I think you have to be tenacious and pushy because the first ten years nothing happened. Mm. Um, uh, but I, I'm not sure if I'm doing it on my own terms. I'm trying to do it as much as possible with as much control as possible mm. but when I'm doing film work you know I'm you know, I'm doing Valkyrie I'm in a big film here's your lines here are the scenes get on do it not much heart you know I'm not gonna be able to say hey I don't know it's just get on and do it um, when I was doing the drama show The Riches which I did in America then I was an exec producer so I had more sway but still it's a big machine and so mm. you've got to fit in that the stand up will be machine that I'm ahead of or the front of so I can say I'd like not to do this but I'd like to do that I want to play you know Europe I want to play Berlin I want to do gigs in French and then you know Romania Bucharest comes up do you want to play there yeah I'll play there Istanbul I'd like to play there so I can choose to add in things so I, I try and get you try and get as much control as you can it's better to fail from your own mistakes than other people's Ooh, yeah is it a conscious thing to try and do some things that haven't been done before? Because the, the current tour has gone to some slightly more far-flung places. Yes, I mean, the, the, there's ways of getting publicity. You could be, if you're new, there is a certain publicity just for being new. Um, you can be uh, someone throwing, you know, throws TVs out windows and that kind of stuff. That will get press, but then that people want more of that so you've got to keep throwing TVs out the window then you never get to watch any TV because it's always out the window unless you live outside a window um, so I've decided to try and do it by doing things that people haven't done before and playing an American go that Hollywood Bowl gig no one had done a solo stand-up show in Hollywood Bowl so I suddenly realized it and said let's do it now which was cheeky because I'd already played LA twice um, 
two different times with the same show. This was the third time with the same show, so that was a cheeky thing to do. Madison Square Garden, Katmandu, met a man from Katmandu on the streets in New York, and I thought I should go there. It's that uh, simple. Yeah, and he had really good English, and he said, I'm a student. I said, do kids have speak good English in, in Kathmandu? And he said, yeah, enough to. Can I do a gig there? He said, yeah, I think you can. So I said, all right, I'll do a gig in Kathmandu. <laughs> so that's it. Russia, Dylan Moran was playing Russia. Other people have been playing um, the Eastern European cities, Riga, Tallinn. So I started going in there. I wanted to go into the, the Balkans where they had the war, you know, back in the 90s. Um, so, you know, I'm very positive on Europe. Europe has my fingernails, so British, European, and transvestite at the same time. So, yeah, it's good to get out as our country is lurching around, careering off into some right-wing place like in the 30s. Yeah, it is, um, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it happens when economic crises happen and yeah. people stomp up and down. But, you know, still the majority of people uh, are sensible, but people get worried and then, you know, yeah. any immigrants get demonized and they say that everyone's trying to sign on um, job seekers allowance which is not true but it just as soon as somebody says it then and right wing people have an agenda so fear makes people angry yeah at the wrong things and yeah and they can be worried about jobs and things and whatever and then so this is when you know Hitler rose in the 30s mm. so anyway I'm, I'm making a point of that there's a political thing behind it I want to go out and you know I'm touring France in French and want to do Germany in German Spanish get Russian so I've got a lot of things to do. <laughs> so the obvious segue from that is you're going to be mayor, aren't you? Well, no, we'll see. You know, because I could get there and not get mayor, but then I won't. Then they say, ah, what egg on his face? You know, big ten-year run-up, <laughs> didn't get it. Uh, and then I'll go try to be an MP, and then I'll try again. But what I don't tend to do is to do things. I, I fail. I, you know, I came from a lot of failure, so I just try to run marathons in South Africa and fail at that. But I go back again. Hmm. That's the trick. Yeah. Because that, that is the story of my life. Keep going back and back and back and back. And uh, that's Nelson Mandela. Get that off Nelson Mandela. Um, you know, he did a lot of failure before it all worked. So that's the trick. So the, the London Mayor thing is, that's the ultimate fantasy for a street performer, to finally have control of the streets. Ah, uh, well, yes. You know? and I've, I've wondered about this. <laughs> Does it look like saying street performing happens everywhere? It's... It would be interesting to know what I what one can do, but I would like to it to be you know to get our, our thing into more into as positive as places uh, as one could. But it won't be my central plank of things for London. But it, but um, I am an extra performer, so so yes, I will obviously bear that in mind. Big, yeah, you're going to get a lot of emails from old street performing colleagues. No, I think we're okay. I've got one more thing. Okay. Um, you have two more if you want. Okay, I have got two more. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. You talked earlier about about working with Rob, yeah. and you actually you said that your show wasn't very good, and, and you think Rob would agree. And actually, that's not true because I talked to Rob. All right. And he thinks you're overly hard on your early work, and he wanted me to ask on you my early stand-up work or the early. I think generally all the early work. You must agree that our, our early. Street performing shows were not good. Does he say, does he specifically? He doesn't say that? specifically say no because we got it. We got it to a pretty good place. I mean, we did some good the shows. The sword fight was was kicking. Oh, no, the sword fight yeah, was great. great. But yeah. you know, you're talking about two years after the initial failures. I'm talking about that '85 going into the like the late summer, the summer of '85 going into the winter of '85, into the beginning of '86. It wasn't 
and to, even when we got through to the summer of 86, it still wasn't in a great place. But, but that early stuff, I mean, you know, as I said, at its best, it was, hey, you guys are crazy. And at its worst, it was, it just had no, it had no, um, it had no concrete to it. Okay. Right. So, right. I, so, and I'm not, you know, I'm saying I rewrote the show and made it worse for Rob to come <laughs> back and join because I put a whole load of spoken lines into it. You know, right. you say this and you say that, which obviously don't work. You, you've got to feel those lines out there. You know, it's got to be a bit. Anyway. So. so, Rob wanted me to ask you yeah. what you think is your best work. My best work. Yeah. Uh, in life, I guess. Um. I think the street. I think the, the, the sword fighting show was great. When it did good, it was great. It, we never got a beautiful structure into it, but that could be really fun. And you know, people weren't doing that. Um, I think I could do a, a fun show on the unicycle and the manacles when I was when I was doing that. That could be fun, but it was a bit old hat. The 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 Dambusters show. That was a beautiful idea. When's the last time you were on a unicycle? Um, I did it for um, TGI Friday. TGI? The, um, oh, the Chris Evans. Yeah, the Chris Evans. Is that TGI? TEFI. TEFI Fridays. Yeah, I was thinking that sounds like a restaurant. Um, I did it for that on, on Red Nose Day okay. one year. So, um, was that a tall? I think it was a tall uni, yeah, five footer. So, that was when I last did that. Um, stand up, yeah, I think I've done some good stand up. Well, I'm really proud of that. The, I just sold out this 2000 seater in Paris called the, the Olympia Olympia which is yeah, Edith Piaf played the Jack Burrell Hendrix David Bowie and that's and not to, bad to sell it out in French and to do it was a good gig as well which we audio recorded it so um, it was that, that is very special so I think that's probably the proudest thing and the tour just before that playing Leon Leon was great two nights the guy said all the comedians have had to buy their own tickets I thought that's pretty amazing <laughs> and people really helping us sell stuff it was French and the Brits at this time when our country is fearing off to the, end of the right wing it was French people and British people working really hard to try and sell this thing out without the mainstream press who really didn't give a monkeys in France it's more the, the, the online press and the, and the cable press and people power people and people turn out that I'm standing outside the front when people were turning up it was just it's just great um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's actually living inside a, a dream. It's living inside a film. It's doing gigs in French. I mean, and people can download the show off my website for only five pounds or five euros. So it's, it's sort of there for people to see. And it's got swearing in, which I like. And, uh, and it's all in French except for the word fuck. It's absolutely fucking no more for me. And the French really liked that when I was putting the swear words into it. So. Um, yeah, I think that's the greatest thing. But I've done some nice English stand-up. Uh, you know, there's been some good stand-up which I'm very happy with, very uh, pleased with. Um, and Death Star Canteen's come up to 20 million hits now, so I'm doing some sort of sequel to it now in the show. But gigs in French, and, and, and soon in German, next year in German. I have to do it. You have to do it. Once I've done German, then there's more to do. Yeah. Cool. Okay, I think that's all we have the time for. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, cheers. Thank you. And 
that's the show for this month. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget that we also make an internet TV version of every live London Varieties show that we do. This month's show features a full lineup of amazing comedy, circus and variety performers, plus you can see a few little clips of the interview with Eddie. Just go to mattricardo.com to watch any of the past shows in glorious high-definition video for free. And of course, Matt Ricardo is also the place to go to find out more about me and to get more information about the upcoming shows that we're doing. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Ricardo, that's one T in Matt. This podcast was created by Sounds Wild, hosted by the British Comedy Guide and sponsored by Unum. Thanks to all of them. I hope to see you at the Leicester Square Theatre for the next show on June 27th at 9.30pm, featuring Jenny Eclair, Jimmy Cricket, Rod Laver and So-and-So Circus. But until then, that was your London Varieties. Thank you.